Eric, how you doing? Hey, how's it going? It's been a while. Good to yeah. see you. Hey, how are Glad you? this worked out. Yeah. The, I was just... over a little bit of a cold, so. Oh, don't worry. I was a little worried on that. <clears throat> well, if you, if you, you know, if it, we'll just see what happens. <laughs> right, we'll just edit that part out. I'm Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. I'm at the Tony Rocca Gallery and Lounge in Ubud, Bali, a fitting place to meet this episode's guest, Aaron Fishman, CEO of East Bali Cashews. So what does a famous Balinese artist and gallery owner have in common with an American from the state of Vermont? I'll tell you, a shared love and respect for Bali, the people, and the landscape. And that's where our conversation began this episode on a sweltering Monday evening sitting on a bench beneath a sprawling banyan tree. If you think this conversation is simply a how-to audio guide to growing your own cashews, hold tight. Cashews are the subject, but the underlying story of why cashews goes much deeper. You see, Aaron believes that profits and compassion make good bedfellows, an idea increasingly lost on contemporary enterprises that bow to the pressure of investors and shareholders, and in so doing, undermine morale, worker loyalty, and commercial success. I started our conversation by asking Aaron to give us a glimpse of the East Bali landscape. East Bali, it's in the rain shadow um, and kind of is the beginning of the dry eastern Indonesia region. So it's, um, you know, it doesn't get rain seven months a year. There's no above ground water. There's no rivers. There's no rice fields. There's not not a single rice field in the area. So it's all um, dry land, uh, semi-arid tropics. So you have cassava and corn and cashews and mango and things like that so it's 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 quite poor um, from both an access perspective and from the fact that there's not any tourism or water or um, you know other infrastructure so of all things that you discovered when you were there why cashews why not cassava or any other type of of, of uh, product I think that just the premiumness of cashews and how surprising it was that such an expensive um, commodity you know, although it's a familiar store with coffee and chocolate and tea and um, other commodities, you know, it was just so striking to see people loading bags of, you know, thousands of dollars of, of cashews and, and be in such um, deep poverty. So um, it's also, of course, you know, it, it, to, to bring cashews to market to a Western market would be a lot easier than cassava or, or um, corn or whatnot. Because of the uniqueness of the product. Yeah, because everybody, you know, everyone knows cashews, whereas cassava is a bit harder. But but not everyone knows how a cashew grows. Could you explain that? Because I when, when I think you described it to me last time, I was blown away. I didn't realize how labor-intensive it is to remove a cashew from a tree. Sure, yeah. Um, it's actually, well, the, the from the tree is the easy part. From the shelling is the hard part. Mm. So uh, cashews, are, it's, a, it's a tree crop, um, and there's this giant swollen fruit uh, kind of on top of the nut and then the nut sits below it um, and the nut skin is poisonous um, and so it has to be shelled in a very careful way and then it has a second skin that has to be peeled by hand so it's a very very labor intensive uh, nut and um, uh, very very um, high quality obviously but it it, um, it does require quite a bit of labor to, to shell it. So, so Aaron, when I heard this story, and, and we, we use this term greenfield, it doesn't get more greenfield than this. Walking into an environment where basically people have been doing the same thing for 30, 40, 50 years, there's really no tech 
technology we were looking to introduce initially. Um, it was really a matter of just trying to solve a social economic problem in an area of Bali that needed some support. W what was the epiphany? Was it was it just this this moment of hey we can make a business out of this and we can give something back? Was it that somebody you had read something or somebody had come and introduced the idea? Where did it all originate? Um, really, it was just pure ignorance um, combined with. Uh stupidity uh, to, to, to begin. The great startup formula. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, I researched how to process cashews. Um, I, what I didn't, you know, what, what's very hard to get a grasp on is the industry and why things are the way they are. Why is it um, in this situation? How, how did it become this way that cashews are, you know, grown in one country, processed in a different country, and roasted in a third country, and sold sometimes in a fourth country, you know, country. You know, how did that come to be is what I didn't have a good grasp on, and, and how much would be required to overcome that, or at least to, to, to compete with that. In, in the era of anti-globalism, where people are throwing up borders and deciding to bring their industries back home, it's kind of interesting that here we are at a point where you're demonstrating and helping uh, guide a process for, for processing uh, and developing the value add that the Balinese need and deserve in order to sell their cashews at a higher price. Um, before, I guess, part of what you were pointing out is that the, there was the economic advantage in shipping it off or shipping it out. Uh, but nobody really had stepped in to say, no, we, we can do it differently. Did you start with a small, small experiment, a few plots, a few families, or did you just go full bore at this and say, this is the way we're going to build? No, no, we started really small with about 100 grand. I, I you know, um, kind of scrapped together some cash and put, the, put some money on the credit card and, you know, fr fr friends and family and scrapped it together and started. And, and you know, of course, we we're losing you know lots of money and and then once we kind of proved that we could actually do the operations in other words hire people make a product package a product sell a product um then it then you know the of course we had to raise raise funds so again. the proof of concept was end-to-end -end, demonstrating the full span of doing it and then getting it to market as well and where was your initial market uh, i was here in bali um we did a little kickstarter thing in the u.s um but it was basically just just you know local yeah. What, what's this? And, and how long ago was this now? When did you get started with this? So we really started, you know, I, I came in late 2011 and then I kind of got the idea in 2012 and then started building the factory and, and we kind of began processing cashews in 2013. What, what was the turning point? So that was 2013. We were looking to raise funding for the second to third time, I guess, and didn't really have a business plan. We were looking for around a million dollars. And... Um, you know, we had like 250 employees back then. We had proven that we could, you know, bring in, I think we had like 300,000 in revenue or something like that. So um, we reached out, actually we reached out for funding to this um, organization in Singapore called IAX. And they said, well, we can't really get you any money, but this this um, private equity firm wants to do a business plan and, and, um, and a financial model for you. So um, they came and, and did it, and um, you know we were still losing lots of money back then, and but we attracted um, some larger investors. So did that legitimize it? I mean, yeah. having somebody like KKR step in and, and do the, the the memorandum and create the spreadsheets and the business plan that almost gave you that lift. It did absolutely, mm -hmm. and then on the fourth round, it really an investor came from the KKR family to to um, to really you know add needed uh, capital. So mm -hmm. uh, it's it's. Cashew processing is such a capital-intensive business, um, and I didn't really realize that going in. Um, and you know, that's I think a way. The, the reason it because it's so capital-intensive, it keeps out 
um, a lot of countries that you know grow cashews but can't process them. So, um, so that you know that that uh, having KKR kind of le- legitimizes and explain yes, this is a capital-intensive business, and yes, it needs working capital, and yes, it needs this kind of machinery, and yes, there's potential in the market for this type of product. That was essential in getting us to the next uh, steps. So, so the idea of bringing capital into an undeveloped market where it was virtually pretty much untested was a bit of a leap for most investors. The idea, why would you go from zero to 100 overnight versus Shenzhen or across the border somewhere where there's some manufacturing or, or some more uh, a process orientation to how people are doing things. In other words, was it more of a social concern about this or was it more of an operational issue that was getting in the way? Yeah, I would say um, all of our in- investors were um, you know, without that social component, wouldn't have put their money in yeah. uh, from the very beginning. So that you know, obviously, the, there had to be kind of a business proposition as well. Um, but uh, yeah, they were definitely there for the social uh, reason. You know, Aaron. Um, lots of times, money doesn't come to first-time investors uh, or first-time uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, you, you have to actually demonstrate some uh, success. You walked in as a young guy. Uh, interesting idea. Good. A compassionate uh, vision about what could be possible. What is it about you that that you know drew people to the idea of East Bali cashews? I mean, you were, if if I may, largely untested. I think um, you know how we kind of got our investors at each uh, point after the very very beginning was just by putting product in front of them and showing them that we could make a very very high quality product. Um, and when you compare it to, because what you have to remember is that this this system, how broken it is by shipping it from one country to the next, that actually destroys quality, um, and it makes a pretty gross nut at the end of the day. Explain that. So I mean, when you you know you take something off a tree and then kind of destroy incentives for quality um, through the economic system that it's traded in. So in other words, the worse quality that you sell, kind of the more money you can make. Um, and you follow that through 17 different pairs of hands, which are how many will touch a, a cashew nut before it reaches market, or before it reaches the customer. Um, you see that at the end of the day, you kind of get a gross, uh, you know, it's, you know, who wants to eat a commodity? You want to eat a, you want to eat a cashew, you know? So uh, you would be disgusted to see some of these factories. I mean, they are foul places with um, really gross, uh, I mean, just, and you see it in the end product. I mean, I, one of our um, earliest uh, export partners in Australia, Unique Health Products, they're a fantastic company. They're um, who um, was one of our, our, our very first partners to, to begin selling export-wise. Uh, the owner there, he's a, he's an avid fan of cashews, and he was importing organic um, cashews from Vietnam. And um, I brought him a pack of our cashews and, and said, you know, smell these, the difference between these two bags. And he threw them right in the trash, the Vietnamese cashews. And, and since that day, you know, four, three, four years ago, has never even thought of it uh, since and this and and you, I've done that st- I've done that same test many many times yeah. spoken like a true entrepreneur by the way <laughs> well I mean it's 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 surprising how different the quality is yeah. it's not it's not actually comparable it's 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 that it's that d- drastically different kind of your your difference from the first time you get a a beautiful chocolate bar that's been carefully um, sourced and, and crafted or a, a cup of coffee that you first time you switch from cheap stuff to something a, a little bit higher quality mm. It's a, it's a refined taste. Not even refined. Like, it's more like you didn't know what you were missing. So mm-hmm. any any normal person could could um, enjoy it. The question is, are they able to afford it or not? You know, are they willing to pay more for it? 
When we come back, the secret to what makes East Bali cashews an original success story. This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. More in a moment. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com. I'm Steve Stein, and you're listening to Inside Asia. My guest this episode is Aaron Fishman, founder and CEO of East Bali Cashews. In the first part of our conversation, we learned what it takes to make a labor and capital intensive cashew processing business fly. In the second half, we turn to the idea that sits at the heart of the East Bali Cashew venture and discuss what it means to be a social enterprise. The word social enterprise or impact investing have have lost most of their meaning. Um, You know, kind of what was the idea 10 years ago or five years ago is is drastically changed now. Um, How's that? Explain that. Well, as you've seen, uh, as you really have seen kind of uh, an adoption of the word from for for a number of players in the in the market that have no social or Uh. impact goals whatsoever and really just need good marketing um, you've seen kind of uh, a vast dilution of the word so we've kind of pulled away from it and really just focused on our quality internally of course it's still the reason why all of us come to work every day um, and uh, the key the key to that is really you know looking at our employees which we now have 700 people working for us um, as partners we don't look at them as as charity cases or anything like that these are you know the farmers are our business partners our employees are the people who add value to our products and um, the happier they are and the more that they have a wonderful life the the better our products are going to be so you walked in with the new premise the idea that the community will participate they'll own they'll own part of this are they are they stakeholders in this could you Talk a little bit about what that model looks like. Sure. I mean, we have a school on site with 55 kids. We've now had four graduating classes from that school. We have um, a healthcare clinic uh, that is now in the process of being certified with the government. So let us refer directly to um, primary care. We have um, 13 farmer uh, uh, groups that uh, directly... Uh, that we work with provide equipment and um, financing. We have um, specialty crops that we've introduced like hibiscus into the region for off-season um, or shoulder season uh, economic um, you know, kind of uh, bonuses. We have, um, of course, we source a lot from the community. We have, um, you know, the, 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 the even even just from the the, the workers alone, I mean, you're, we're putting $100,000 every month into this community that hadn't really nothing um, every single month just in the form of salary and then that goes and supports uh, thousands and thousands of other people as well in terms of secondary businesses and and um, small entrepreneurs who start a shop or who can buy a, uh, who can start uh, you know buy some livestock and improve their um, income so it's it's a massive um, change that kind of you know can't just be put you know into a small category. It really um, is a community that's been created. It's almost like an infrastructure unto itself. It sounds like you know, micro-lending and all kinds of aspects to enrich the community in a hundred thousand yeah. different ways. We have a, a cooperative on site, an employee store. We have lending program. We have, um, I mean, we help, we've helped, we have domestic violence people that, you know, uh, people who have, who've, 
encounter that and we have to help them out of a situation. We have um, great community relations with the kids and with the and um, social programs. So it really is a community uh, that we have have built and, 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 and live with. How do you structure that? Do you, do you simply set aside a certain amount every month? Is it a percentage of profits or, or top line? Um, what would be your advice to others who are trying to embark on a similar type of structure? I would advise them definitely not to set aside a certain percentage and think of it more as just like a, a family. And, um, you know, you do what you need to do when you can do it. And when you don't have a lot of money, you kind of save and scrimp. And when you have more money, you do you invest. Um, but it really is not... Um, you can't put it on a, you can't put it on a, a PNL uh, just like in a, in a simple way. It's uh, it's much more complex, and you really try. The the goal behind all of it is to educate and to add value to the community because basically the community will then add value to you. So it sounds like instead of any solid structure, it's compassionate capitalism. It's it's the idea of building community and using for-profit methods in order to generate some greater good, not just bottom line. Exactly, yeah. So I think, um, I don't know what the exact title or label that would go on it would be, but I haven't thought about it. Yeah, compassionate capitalism sounds sounds good. Are we going to we gonna run with that? <laughs> it's better than social enterprise. Yeah, it is. And I understand what you're saying before, because just like with the word organic, sure. now everyone's yeah. slapping that on every, every possible label, and there's no really check and balance on what that looks like. And in social, corporate social responsibility went through the same thing, lots of lift service, yeah. and now impact investing and everything else. So I understand that. But a lot of organizations around the region are inquiring and trying to understand, how do I bring principles of, of this social enterprise or impact investing? back to my country, adapt it to my set of circumstances, and then move forward. A lot of the things that we might do would look like it could, in the short term, go against the bottom line. So investors or corporations are going to have a hard time implementing that into systems that already, you know, kind of have a three-month timeline on their bottom line. And so long-term thinking is very, very difficult. So... I really think that there's certain investors out there who are very, very, very good and most who are very bad uh, or not not because they're bad people, but just because they don't understand. And um, I think a, a, a huge issue also is in the entrepreneur pipeline. There's a huge amount of distraction and talent show competition and beauty contest stuff for who... Uh, that, that distracts the entrepreneur from the ultimate goal, which is to make a product that, that people want to buy. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think that the, in general, the, it, the entire kind of sector is a little bit screwed up mm. and um, there's no easy fix. The category, social yeah, enterprise category. impact. In other words, it's kind of lost its meaning, lost its purpose. People are being drawn off and distracted. Is that the fault of the entrepreneurs or is it the fault of the investment community, which is simply reprioritizing for entrepreneurs prior to giving them the investment required? It is absolutely not the fault of the entrepreneurs. It's 100% of the fault with the people who are who are deploying the money. Well, there's the question then. So if, if there isn't an absolute structure to this, and if it, and an investor can't understand how you're going to deploy that capital in support of a community, how do you then you know, enter it into the formula that arrives at the ultimate you know, product and enterprise? Because I think that's all they're asking to see is if we're going to do this, let's do it in a way where we can see it, track it, monitor it, and see perhaps the social benefits that come from it. Fair enough? Yeah, I, you know, I think tracking it is also tends to be a waste of time uh, because of how poor the systems for tracking are. So, it, it, you know, I think what 
it, it really needs to come down to um, really a a very a very a, a very intentional investor. A very it ha, it ha, the money being spent or deployed or invested or donated or whatever it has to be done with serious intention, and there needs to be. Um, experience in the mix there so you're seeing a lot of just people who have no idea what they're doing with goals that are not aligned with what what they where, where they should be um, spending money and then that and that money is power right and then that that changes the course of where things are supposed to go so my advice is really to to for anyone who's considering spending investing or donating money in the space to analyze the why do they want to do it? And do they have enough experience on board? Are they partnering with someone who has done this before, who they've checked and understand, hey, this is a really good um, track record that this person has, and they can add value um, and, 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 and experience. So well, why would they, Aaron? I mean, why would investors out there, it's kind of like the green funds from 20 years ago, where people said, well, you know, these are portfolios we're creating just for renewable energy or for sustainable businesses. And it's, 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 we're going to identify uh, investors who are interested in doing some good or giving back or preserving or sustaining, but they failed miserably because the profit uh, simply wasn't there. Cigarettes simply make a higher profit. What, what do you do or where do you begin from your experience being a recipient of funds to persuade certain investors that it's actually a good thing and an okay thing to do? If anything, a balanced portfolio approach perhaps where maybe it won't return the same profit, but it'll create a stronger, better middle class that will go on to do more to acquire and, and purchase other goods perhaps? Um, well, I don't think reduced profit is at all a good strategy. Why is that? Uh, you know, because the difference between say, 7% net profit and 0% net profit is a matter of focus. Mm. Or, so it's not so much that um, these, re these funds should, ex um, should expect, say, market returns. Uh, the conversation shouldn't even be about what, what return they expect. Um, if, you, if you have uh, entrepreneurs who are not um, always reminded that they need to deliver on the bottom line, then of course the business is going to fail. It's just going to always require funding and funding and funding because the difference between positive net profit and negative net profit mm -hmm. is so thin, mm -hmm. right? And so you always have to be focused on positive net profit because that's the point of a business. That's what a business does. So if you're not focused on that, it's not going to work. Regarding what the investor should do, um, like I said, they really need to be f focused on maybe on the timeline so maybe on when are they looking to get a return instead of say a you know typical PE fund might be a seven uh, seven year return maybe they need to look on a, a longer timeline secondarily they need to have people on board who have successfully done who have experience in this sector mm. what when you when you build these clinics or schools or provide micro loans to people who need it or or intervene and provide services for when there's there's a domestic abuse what, who makes that decision? Do you singly make that decision? Or is there a panel or a committee that says this is where we're going to give a, a portion of our, of our funds? Um, we have um, a very strong group of leaders, so you know around 30 people who are making those types of decisions. So if it's a small issue, um, it'll be them. If it's a large issue, obviously it'll come to the senior management staff. So um, 
and and we always try so we really don't I, I kind of lumped all those in one group but um, you know whether it's helping someone out who's in a tough situation obviously that's a special case um, and we do that just because we care about our people and they're very important to us and they're in very very difficult uh, situations um, for the the farmers groups you know investing in them that's a business decision we're looking at a return on investment in that we want to get a higher quality product um, uh, from that investment decision so it's it yeah you kind of put them in the same boat because the effects look the same but actually from the investment decisions where we decided how we decided to deploy that capital is is very different one is is you know i guess would put it under our people operations division and one is really under our uh, you know in the in the case of a drying center is is um under our, our sourcing division so but they're all the same people working at the company and all doing it, you know, for the same reason. But of course, I mean, the minute that community does not want us in this village, you know, we're gone uh, because they have, it's their village, right? So um, I think it's it's not so simple as, you know, we have, for example, we're, we're in the final stages of creating our co-op, our co-op um, which is employee-owned. Um, the, the amount of work that's gone into that in terms of the organization, the funding, is massive. Um, how to make decisions. So, and these, these are, you know, our people in our area, our stakeholders, have absolutely no experience in this. They've never been taught how to do it. So it's very easy to, for them to make the wrong decision just because they've never done it before. And we, in something like this, you don't want them to make a wrong decision because the the it's it will be too costly not from a financial standpoint but from a human resources standpoint you don't want to put someone in, in a position to fail um, who's not used to kind of having a backup system like if I if this if I went bankrupt after the first year doing that there's no real big deal for me like whatever I'm still a college educated dude I can go back home and whatever um, but for these people the, the the penalty for failure is a lot higher so we don't want to set them up to fail well, why isn't this happening more around the region. Why don't we see these rural-based uh, businesses popping up? Um, because many of the things that you started with is what anybody else would start with. Is it really just about the determination? Is it about inclusion? Uh, or is it about just a simple gap in the market and a clear identification of an opportunity that exists and only needs some tweaking? Bad investment, bad investors, sorry, bad investors. Mm. So, or bad, not in a, in a pejorative sense, but in a, in a, in a inexperienced, um, unaligned investors. So people who just don't sniff out and see the right opportunities, they may be right in front of them, but they're throwing their money in the wrong direction. Wrong direction or the wrong people or the wrong timeline or the wrong amount or the wrong incentive or the wrong strategy, just wrong, 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 wrong. In, in your fundraising endeavors, you must have seen lots and lots of investors and therefore have lots of opinions about what looks good and what doesn't. What do you look for in an investor besides, black, <laughs> besides dumb money? Uh, well, we have fantastic investors now. So. I thought you might say that. <laughs> um, but uh, we have absolutely fantastic investors. Um, so, I, yeah, I can tell stories about bad investors. <laughs> well, I, guess, I guess my point on this is that are there simply things that people should be asking in assessing an opportunity that you feel they don't ask? In other words, is there something that should, should pop to mind for any investor out there and they just, they just miss it? Um, yes, they don't have, and they have no idea how much power they have. They have no idea how inexperienced they are. They have no idea how clueless they are. They have no idea how impatient they are. They have no idea how arrogant they are. They have no idea how um, clueless they are. Um, they have no idea how their expectations are so wrong. So this ruins uh, enterprises. Mm. Uh, just as you see with, with, there's no difference between 
uh, a poor corporate board um, in, a, in, a, in a modern corporation or investors, maybe activist investors in a company who can affect change very rapidly and potentially damaging to a company. So it's no different. Um, you have, if you have bad investors in, in America, you're gonna, it's going to be bad for the business. So it just happens to be that the investors in the U.S. or Europe or wherever happen to be, or, or in regular businesses, regular industries, tend to be much more experienced. And, and um, they've just been weeded out. Whereas in, this, in the uh, social enterprise or impact investing space, very, very low quality investors are, you know, quote unquote, allowed um, to join the party. And that's what causes the problems. This is Inside Asia, and my guest is Aaron Fishman, founder and CEO of East Bali Cashews. It was at this point in the conversation, and just as the sun was fading, that Aaron and I were besieged by a swarm of mosquitoes. Rather than end the conversation, we retreated inside to the Tony Rocca Lounge for a drink, something to eat, and an exchange on the role of nonprofits. Let's get back to the conversation. So, so we came back inside because the mosquitoes were really bad, and that popping noise is that one of those machines, when a mosquito flies in, it actually incinerates it. So you're going to hear popping in the background. But Aaron and I started talking phase two of the conversations about what the impact this is having on nonprofits and some of the models that are being falling into question as a result of the for-profit model, which seems to be having greater success. Tell us a little bit about the project and floors that you're, that you're, that you're building right now, and then we'll move into what we were just talking about with, uh, with respect to nonprofits. Uh, well, we right now are have just finished planting 16,000 trees um, on a plot of land that we're doing in partnership with a community in East Flores. And um, those trees have been developed by us for three years. They're, they yield around five to seven times as much cashews per hectare as, uh, as the existing trees do. These are the most advanced trees in Indonesia. Um, our goal is to replant the one billion cashew trees that exist in Indonesia. And that, and that affects drastically the 10 million people whose incomes depend on those, those trees. So um, we're starting right now, we have 70 employees in East Flores in a very, 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 very remote region. Um, and we're, um, we've just, we've started five months ago. So yeah, I, I, I'm looking a little bit uh, uh, under the weather from, from taking so many uh, plane trips out to uh, East Flores. But it's, a, it's an amazing project, it's a beautiful area and the potential from a business perspective and from an impact perspective is, is massive. So, so poverty-stricken, uh, very under, undeveloped, very remote, as you say, yet there is a business opportunity there. Uh, yeah, you'd find that same situation in thousands, mi millions of villages across across the world. Um, but you just have to kind of know how to work with the community and how to capitalize on uh, the opportunity and do it in a value-add way. I mean, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not you win, I lose, I lose, you win. It's we both win by, by improving the quality of the trees there. Um, and, and, and for generations, we talked about nonprofits, NGOs that have been investing in developing markets and agribusness or trying to help people get started. This is what they, what they claim would be sustainable projects, but they've failed everywhere. Uh, and and, and what, is your, what are your thoughts about nonprofits with respect to these types of uh, projects? I think the people who work in nonprofits are amazing uh, people. Um, for the for the vast majority of them, are amazing people who are really, um, unfortunately, in a system um, which which does not incentivize the right things, and that is 100% the fault of the investors. 
um, in those, in those, uh, the source of the money in those nonprofits. And the investors in this case would be taxpayers or governments who are lending money in order to do sure. some good in the world. It could be, it could be, it could be the source of the funds could be a lot of reasons. But I guarantee you that um, you know USAID's incentives or Aussie or whatever, these are not always you know it's not 100% to help the people in that village. They have unaligned incentives, um, and the people who are using that money are also not 100% aligned with um, the the objectives uh, for example to improve improve the welfare or whatnot because the source of that money they naturally have to go back every year and prove that they spent all the money and that they need more money to do this and if they don't prove that then they're gonna get fired or they're gonna get let go or their organizations gonna get shut down I mean the best result of a, of a nonprofit should actually be to end right because they've accomplished their objective and how often do we hear about a nonprofit shutting down R rarely yeah. right um, but the goal should be to take money more a lot of money and then slowly slowly less and less and less and then finish the job and then go home so there are cashew processing and and uh, agriculture and processing projects all over the region have any of them come to you and asked hey what are you doing differently not a single one and and um, they've spent hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on cashew projects around the world and no they, they don't want to know what a private company thinks because they want to make sure that they get their budget next year. Um, and if they solve the problem or if they do a good job, um, they're not going to get their budget. So it's not necessarily fair to ascribe certain motives to somebody who's not here representing themselves, but it does sound to me like it's not that there's inherently angry or upset with for-profit. It's just that budgets are budgets, and if they're going to continue to work and have a job the following years, they have to deploy the capital in order to have it replenished the year after. Correct. And that's, that is not the fault of those people. That is, the, I mean, who wouldn't do whatever they can to keep their job? I mean, that's, that's everyone on, on earth wants to keep their job. You can't blame them. You have to blame the source of their funding, the investors behind them. So the argument here is do a recce on all types of projects that are going on in developing areas across Southeast Asia and then or anywhere on the world, but just for the sake, because we are in Southeast Asia, just have that conversation and then determine if there isn't a profit potential against it in order to ultimately pivot away from a dependency into more of a uh, profit sustainable model. I don't have such grand aspirations as that. I would just say, hey, ask your ask the investors quest, harder questions, and for the investors themselves, ask your or ask yourself harder questions. There you have it. That was my conversation with Aaron Fishman, founder and CEO of East Bali Cashews. If you were expecting a 30-minute lecture on best practice cashew farming, I hope you learned something. But it was the broader question of sustainable business practices that I hope left you with something more. In this week's Asia Insider Minute, where I try to summarize some of the key themes and topics from the conversation you just heard, I'm left with one key question. By calling an enterprise social, are we merely applying lipstick to a pig? Aaron Fishman thinks so. The terms social enterprise and impact investing, he says, are hugely overplayed. It's both strange and thrilling coming from him, if only because East Bali Cashews has been touted as a best-in-class example of a model social enterprise. It's the quality of our product that sets us apart, he says, nothing more. If that's the case and the answer to impact investing is really no different from investing in any other kind of business where profit and output are king, we've either fallen victim to another financial sector publicity stunt or forces are indeed aligning to press investors to think more ethically. Which is it? Well, let's break it down. The onus, one might argue, is on institutions that have objectives that go beyond pure financial return. 
Governments, for instance, and particularly those from the developing world, are discovering the limitations of charities and not-for-profit programs. As Aaron points out, non-government organizations or NGOs are motivated by two things, doing good and ensuring that each year their programs are refinanced. What's missing is an honest assessment of whether NGO-backed programs are actually making a sustainable difference. Creating dependencies doesn't help anyone, and that's where social enterprises have a leg up on the NGO-backed alternative. By rallying communities to support for-profit initiatives, then sharing in the gains, collective pride and a sense of accomplishment take hold. No one, if they can help it, wants a handout, and as my guest Aaron Fishman points out, there's nothing like the noticeable improvement of one's day-to-day living conditions that inspires and motivates better results. The only big surprise in this tale of social enterprise endeavor is that investors, for the most part, are too caught up in the old paradigms to see the opportunities before them. They sit around with their lattes and spreadsheets and wait for legally binding government grants and multilateral lending guarantees. In the meantime, tens of thousands of viable greenfield businesses are starved for investment capital. What will it take to get investors out of the office and into the field to see what Aaron saw six years ago? A for-profit opportunity and the chance to do some good. For all you investors on the fence, think on this. Social improvement and profitability are not mutually exclusive. Don't believe me? Visit East Bali Cashews. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Be sure to listen to my full conversation with Aaron Fishman by visiting us on www.insideasiapodcast.com or by downloading this or any of our other 82 episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. It's free to listen, so what are you waiting for? Until next week, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com.